This episode is sponsored by Monograph and ArcIT. You'll hear more about them later on in the episode. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hello, Evelyn. Hello, Disruptors. Today's episode is a case study of an architectural firm. I feel like there's been a longing to bring on more actual architecture firms onto our show. So here we go. Um, But it's looking at a firm who's invested in experimenting and iterating with their business model to make improvements to their operations. And they are super entrepreneurial to the nth degree. So Rios was a featured speaker at Monograph's Summer Virtual Conference Section Cut. And Evelyn, you actually attended their session and flagged this session as one of the talks you were really excited about. Tell us why you have had an eye on Rios. So I first learned about Rios through a presentation made at a conference. I can't remember exactly which conference, but at the time they were really talking about how they launched this store in concert with their firm. And it was really interesting to me because they were taking patterns that they found or patterns that emerged out of their architectural design and essentially putting it on textiles and housewares and selling it in a store that when they moved their firm became the first floor, like they dedicated the whole first floor to storefront. I also was on the AIA California board with Bob Hale, who's a partner at Rios. So, you know, in all the conversations that I had with Bob on and off over the years, we never really talked about how Rios operates and functions as a firm. And it was really a, a wonderful surprise at Section Cut to he- hear from the new co-CEOs, Jessamine and Andy, about everything that they are doing. Literally, I think you know, Janine, you kind of said it, all the things that we talk about on Practice Disrupted, they're enabling in their practice. Rios is a design collective working beyond boundaries. Founded in 1985 as a multidisciplinary design firm, the design studio has evolved to meet the changing needs of a changing world. Combined, their talents comprise a wide range of professional skills, including architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning, graphic, interior, exhibit, and product design. Based in Los Angeles, Rios works everywhere with transformative projects in San Francisco, Austin, San Diego, Sacramento, Puebla, Mexico, and beyond, applying a strong interdisciplinary collaborative approach to the design process, whether on projects within their office or in consultation with other design firms. Their projects are diverse, including municipal, corporate retail, hospitality, institutional, and residential commissions. Let's cut to the interview. I'm Jessamine Davis. I'm the co-CEO of Rios. I am the business partner here, so I focus on operations and strategy and things like that. And then this is my partner, Andy Lance. Hi, I'm Andy Lance. I am co-CEO and creative director Um, I focus on a lot of our architectural practice um, projects, everything from workplace to public space. 
and then everything in between. Could you guys, because not everyone who's listening on the podcast has heard of Rios. So I was hoping that maybe you could give us a high overview, you know, what's, what's the elevator pitch for Rios? And then maybe talk about how you believe you approach things differently from a practice operations standpoint. And I realize that's a two-part question. So why don't we start with the elevator pitch? Definitely. Um, So, you know, we're a 35-year young multidisciplinary firm here in Los Angeles. Our founder, Mark Rios, really pioneered multidisciplinary practice um, by kind of dual degreeing both in landscape architecture and architecture. And I thought, you know, uh, in, in the creation of, of Rios, you know, brought with it this idea of a design vision that was collaborative across disciplines and gave people space to really break rules and, and shake away a lot of what they learn um, in school within their disciplines. Um, we are a, I think as of today, 238 person strong firm uh, across uh, landscape architecture, architecture, interior architecture, interior design, environmental graphic design, placemaking, product design, we have it all underneath one roof. And so a lot of our success is really bringing different points of view to the table and a diversity and in, in ways to address design challenges and turn them into awesome design solutions. So from an operations standpoint, our firm is organized into 12 studios, which I think is not that uncommon, but um, each studio has one to two studio leaders. And some of them are fairly specifically set up. So they might, you know, focus on one typology and all be architects. And then some of them are actually pretty interdisciplinary. It just depends on the studio. So we have a uh, an experiential design studio that um, is incredibly interdisciplinary. And sometimes those groups will be so successful that they end up, you know, kind of going through mitosis. Um, and then that is, you know, so that's how we recently spawned a second residential um, architecture studio. Or, you know, we have some um, studio leaders who are so entrepreneurial and passionate about the people that are developing that they will actually incubate other studios within their studios. And so we've got within our interior architecture studio is incubating a product design studio. And within one of our landscape architecture studios, they're incubating an urban design studio. And so it kind of like, it's very organic, I guess, and things just sort of grow and change pretty regularly. And generally what happens is um, we'll have some kind of entrepreneurial employee who will pitch an idea and we'll tell them that's great and they'll go try it out. (laughs) That is unique and kind of interesting to hear that you all are encouraging that entrepreneurial spirit in your design studio, Um, which I guess like I kind of want to push you further on this idea of how, how you all envision Rios pushing the way you design and practice um, in a new direction that's kind of maybe different than the way that most firms practice or many firms practice, Um, and then how that manifests in your designs. You know, one of our tenets of design, we we use the term audacity pretty frequently. We like to be audacious because it sort of is this kind of interesting moment of sitting on the precipice of either succeeding amazingly or failing miserably, (laughs) right? And uh, living an audacious life is actually an exciting one because it pushes you to take bigger uh, risks, right? So when we're working, we're kind of looking for those 
uh, audacious moments of bringing people together to talk big picture, to talk big idea. Um, and, you know, using everybody's diverse points of view to really fuel a way to stand in contrast to what we would expect our competition to do. Um, we do it for us. We do it uniquely by us. We really believe that our perspective gives us the ability to elevate the work um, in such a way that it, you know, we believe in it fundamentally. And if it doesn't get picked up, then that audacity failed. But if it does get picked up, it succeeded and it's really exciting. So here's how I think a typical practitioner is going to respond. They're going to ask, how do you balance audacity with risk? And how <laughs> do you really go about celebrating failures rather than, you know, internalizing them and it just becoming you know, a, a sticking point, which it often does at firms. In terms of risk management, I think it's like portfolio theory. So I, I have a finance background, right? And so the idea is not to have too many eggs in one basket, essentially, really simply put, um, you know, we have hundreds of projects at a given time. And so if one fails, that's okay. Cause we don't, it's not like we're one of those firms that has seven mega projects um, around the world or something like that. And so we're not going to always win and that's okay. But we usually learn something from that loss. Um, you know, it might've been a misread of what the client was really looking for or something like that. Um, those things happen. Uh, we learn from them. We always debrief and figure out what we did wrong, but we don't beat ourselves up about it. I guess when you fail, it's all about the recovery, right? When you make a mistake, it's all about how do you strategically get through it and survive it. Um, I always call it redemption weeks. I had a couple redemption weeks last week on a couple projects where you make a mistake and it's not about sitting and getting upset with yourself. It's about how do we all come together and solve the problem of recovering from this. And I think that type of culture really brings with it people who can take more calculated risks or feel the space uh, and freedom to take those risks, right? Because there'll always be something to learn from it and there'll always be the ability to take a next step, hopefully, <laughs> if you do a really good redemption week. So I got really excited hearing you say that because, you know, we just did an episode where we were talking about mistakes and, you know, how you respond to mistakes is everything. And I think architects in general are very mistake adverse and they aren't willing to step into the risk. It sounds like you guys have a really high tolerance for risk, which is exciting because I see you guys not only taking it on in architectural projects, but also in all of these additional business strategies that you're running through Rios. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the 12 small businesses that Rios is running as a company? Sure. So we have several, as I said, we have several studios. Some of them are very narrowly focused. Some of them are really super broad focused. We have one studio that their whole manifesto is to do the first of whatever. And so their projects um, really range and they're all super bizarre. And But then sometimes they have to fill in with really practical stuff, right? So that's the less glamorous side is you have to do three regular projects to fund this one super weird one. And then we have two studios that are focused exclusively on single family residential, um, which is a huge part of our practice that maybe is less well known. Um, and then we have um, a couple studios focused on commercial architecture, but they, you know, have 
some interdisciplinary components. They usually what will end up happening is two of our studios often collaborate together. So a landscape studio might work with um, one of our commercial architecture studios or one of our um, residential studios on a project so that it really helps the studios get to know each other across the office and kind of pair up. And then our experiential studio often works with the other studios so that they, they might have an architectural component and that they'll get some kind of consulting on and et cetera. We've got a studio focused on um, interior architecture and interior design. What am I missing? Oh, and obviously landscape. We have four studios focused on landscape architecture of different scales. I feel like your the history of the firm, the background of some of your founding members, like having these multidiscipline backgrounds, like really drove this interest in having a cross-discipline practice. But can you talk to us a little bit about the the driver to continue to push that from a business standpoint to actually intentionally be different than the typical architecture studio model? Yeah, totally. You know, I, I think it's, it's what really, it's always really exciting when we bring new clients in because they usually only know us for one thing, right? Oh, you do workplace. Oh, you do architecture. And then they come to the office and they're like, Oh, holy crap, you do everything. Right. And sometimes that's daunting for clients. They're like, you have too much, right? Um, but it's also sometimes really good because it brings a different point of view for how to solve a problem. So for instance, our, our workplace practice, I love bringing landscape architects into the mix because you start to imagine gardens on the inside of buildings instead of um, public spaces filled with landscape. And so you start to reframe and, and, and do really groundbreaking design that breaks rules of what's expected. Um, we don't just put wallpaper on walls. We actually think holistically about how to bring everybody to the table to make the best experiences. And so that is kind of the, the moment when you feel that it's thriving is when you get the people at the table and you're having these amazing conversations that you're no longer talking about walls or, or elevators and stairs. You're talking about really comprehensive points of view and, and experiences in the built environment, which is awesome. Another thing that I think is sort of not intuitive is that because we do so many different things, um, a relationship that for another firm might be competitive for us can be collaborative. And so, you know, Andy might have a good friend that he went to school with that works at another firm. And, you know, that friend might end up being a collaborator for our landscape team. Um, whereas if we were just an architecture firm, we couldn't get to work with those friends in that way uh, in a lot of cases. So if I were to summarize how Rios operates, it seems like you are a collective of a lot of different businesses who happen to be drawn together through culture. And I guess if I were, you know, an individual or if I were an independent student leader of one of those business lines, then what is my commitment to Rios? And what is my commitment to fulfilling my own entrepreneurial goals? And then how do I bring that back to the Rio's culture? That's a great question. Um, I think we have a pretty cohesive culture, to be honest. And it's a lot about being collaborative, being open-minded, um, being joyous, as Andy said, being audacious. Um, I think that the studio leaders are pretty tied in to the creative directors as well. And so even though they're these distinct um, groups, we have dialogue between the studio directors and between the studio directors and creative directors on a really super regular basis. We hand projects across the office. We work on projects across the office. Um, 
sometimes something that starts in one place doesn't end up there. And actually, we have staff move between studios, not super often, but fairly often. We have architects move into landscape architecture sometimes. Um, and so they're pretty interdependent because sometimes there's an ebb and flow. Like one studio might get really busy and they might ask for help from someone else. And so we're definitely stronger together. And then, you know, depending on what's happening in the economy or with certain clients, Sometimes a studio will fall on hard times and um, the rest of us are there to, as sort of an insurance policy or, you know, a safety net. And it, it, when you imagine it in your head, it may appear to be like all these floating people working individually. But I think the the verb that brings us together is this notion of agility, that we come together to work fast paced and to think about, you know, big ideas. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really remarkable is when we are talking business operation and strategy and really looking out, you know, planning for a year of what we want to do, what, we, what goals we want to set. You know, that's not happening exclusively at the partner level. That's being shared across the studios and across the office um, to really advocate for sort of radical participation is a term that we use pretty frequently um, of getting everybody involved to participate in, in working together. So, you know, when you start out talking about these different businesses, our studios aren't as uh, individual as, as one would seem. They're much more interconnected um, and tied into uh Tons of conversations, lots and lots of meetings, sadly, uh, to make everything uh, go right. I'm just curious about the complexity of managing that, especially from an operational standpoint. I don't know if you guys are willing to dive deeper into this, but I think this probably would be the thing that turns some uh, design leaders away is just trying to charge into that complexity. So how do you guys handle that? And how do you ensure that dialogue is happening on a regular basis? Okay. That's a big question. <laughs> All right. I'm going to nerd out for you. Um, so we, each of our studios is tracked as a separate business unit um, and every project is assigned to a studio. So from a financial standpoint, we have very clear profitability uh, metrics around every studio and every um, project and how those operate. And then we review those with our studio leads every uh, month. So they know exactly how they're doing and they each have their own budgets for the year and um, staffing plans. They set out at the beginning of the year what they think their year is going to look like and what their goals are. And then we meet, we have a, several different meetings. And as Andy alluded to, it requires over communication, mm -hmm. to be honest with mm -hmm. you. Um, and even when you think, you know, we're meeting on Monday about this, we're meeting on Wednesday about that, and we're meeting on Thursday about this other thing, which is a regular weekly situation, um, we still miss somebody and we still drop the ball on something. So there's, um, you know, it just takes a ton of effort and a ton of communication and then also a lot of visual communication. We have tons of information that is transmitted and available via various platforms. I think the other the other thing we started this year, let's celebrate our our job titles co-CEO. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting to take the format of a co-CEO relationship because there's a lot of times where you can talk big ideas, but then getting to implementation is really hard, especially as the people in the room grow greater and greater and greater, you're much more slow moving at getting things actually to be implemented. So, you know, the co-CEO structure that we work within is 
significant to really holding us accountable at implementing a lot of what we talk about from a strategy perspective um, or invested time in meeting with every studio director to go over, you know, monthly financials, setting, you know, annual budgets and goals, um, understanding how to build staffing uh, uh, forecasts for every studio based on their project load. So um, it's a really interesting structure that Jess and I get to share uh, to try to be the ones who have to show up and get us across the finish line in most cases. So really interesting. Yeah, I was really intrigued by your co-leadership model. That is noticeable, um, especially from a leadership standpoint. I think it's it's interesting that you guys have chosen that um, co-partnership model, which I think a lot of firms could learn from. I think it's super helpful for us because um, my background and training is in you know business management, and so I try to do all the meeting on about financial planning and project loads and staffing and budgets and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not very inspiring when it comes to design discussions. <laughs> so, you know, Andy's much better at that than I am. And he really leads us through design excellence and inspiring people in terms of where we're going. And um, I try to be sort of more of the implementation arm, I guess, of the nuts and bolts of things. <laughs> takes a lot of self-awareness and humility. A lot of humility. <laughs> Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode, Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture, one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Jessamine, I would love to dig a little bit deeper into your background and talk about your journey to an architecture firm, because Rios is, it is the first firm that you've come to work through or work with through Not Neutral and worked in, and you seem extremely happy to be here. But I would like to hear a little bit more about your thought process when being approached, given your finance background. You know, why would you come to an architecture firm? Oh, it's such a good story too. So I spent like a decade in private equity before I came and worked here. And I worked with a bajillion different kinds of companies, which is the fun part about working in private equity. And I was a strategy consultant before that. So I worked with a whole bunch of different kinds of companies then. Um, and so, which is a great training because you can kind of be like, I can figure this out no matter what this is. But my family background is much more creative. My mom's an artist and I was raised in an art gallery and, you know, kind of cut my teeth on architectural digest as a child. And, um, so just, um, beauty and aesthetic appreciation has been a huge part of my family culture, my whole life. And I was sort of at a crossroads in my personal, you know, my personal orientation towards work at, I don't know how old I was. Um, 
And it was over a holiday break. And I sat down with my husband and I was like, I feel like I need to go to architecture school. And he said, I think you're crazy because <laughs> you're going to be a hundred years old before you can practice. So we have children and this is a super bad idea. I was like, I really feel like I need to change my career. And I kid you not, a month later, I got approached about this job. So it was not a hard sell for me in any way. I was very, very excited. Well, that sounds like pure kismet there. Was there any connection back to Rios at all? Or was it purely that you just sent out feelers to your network and let people know you were looking and you just happened to land in this space? Yep. <laughs> it's a very LA story. Yeah, totally. Glitter and moonshots and, and karma and together. crystals. It was all karma. Yeah. And in my case, crystals. Yeah. <laughs> it does sound like it was meant to be, but it's also like really, it speaks very highly of the leadership team because I've, I've seen in a lot of firms, like the finance part, the operational part being like this secondary piece to the business that's mm-hmm. siloed. And just to put it at the front of your co-leadership model and to have it operationally part of the entire umbrella of the organization or however you want to diagram it. I mean, it's just a very insightful way that you guys are thinking about your business. It speaks in depth to the way that you're you're probably planning and thinking about finance as a priority. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it, I think the, the interesting thing is, is we get this freedom to sit at the table and talk about us being calculated risk takers, not full on risk takers. Um, we do take ourselves a little seriously. Um, and, you know, pushing people to be entrepreneurial. And I think it's because of those variables of bringing in business smarts with design, like so much of the time that you spend in school on the opposite side of the equation, I wish I had the wherewithal that Jessamine has in regard to financials. I've learned a lot from her um, in, in understanding that. And I see the, um, the ability that that has in empowering me as a designer, right? Um, and I think that's kind of the the secret recipe is, you know, one part financial responsibility, one part creativity, and you can really build a culture of entrepreneurs. There's two really good questions that could piggyback off that, which is about going further into the failure and if you guys want to talk about an example. I love talking failure, both and, yes and, all of the above. Yeah, let's talk about it. (laughs) Well, first of all, it comes from humility, right? We are not afraid of, like, we don't have to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. Actually, some of the smartest people in the room are our most junior staff. And having the humility to ask people and learn from them is just, I mean, come on. We're not that amazing, right? (laughs) Right? Like, we can learn from other people. I mean, I can go on and on about failure because I love talking about it because I think it's empowering to talk about it. Um, You know, like, our greatest examples of of learning from failure, right? We submit on a lot of projects. And, you know, when I was in architecture school, I never read the brief at the start of the (laughs) semester for studio. And I always thought that was my point of leverage of being a good student was like, I don't need to do what this piece of paper says. There's a lot of times where we get like an RFP and we read it very fast. And we're like, they want more than this. They definitely need a 10-year vision plan on this. And they don't not only need architecture, they need every discipline associated, right? So there's a lot of times, you know, that we go into to the pursuit of gigs with kind of everything on the table. We want to put our best foot forward. We want to, you know, that same audacity we work with internally in our culture is something we love to bring to clients and find really great partnerships with. 
but we don't win everything that we put out there, right? There's some tremendous failures where we don't read between the lines or we get overexcited about what we get to present, all those type of things. But, you know, when, when those situations work, um, one great example, we worked uh, with the Trail Foundation in Austin, Texas, um, uh, on a competition for Lady Bird Lake underneath the first street bridge. It's called the Drake Bridge Project. And, you know, we went into that with this monstrous idea of building a floating dock that could hold 750 to 1500 people for people who didn't want to buy tickets to ACL. They could watch ACL across, across the river from downtown and, and, and listen, um, really cool project. The idea was, is that the dock would be a visual registry for how high the water levels, uh, were Ladybird Lake is a, you know, it's a dammed river system. And so when, when things are bad, the water is high. And how do you actually turn design into something that, that marks that, you know, we went into this, pitch with a wild idea and they loved us right and so that's where that failure was a great success we were still the same people not reading the brief <laughs> extensively and trying to show them something greater than what they needed but you know i think that's who we are that's the spirit of us is is really believing in the power of design to to do more than what's what somebody thinks it should do tell her about your inflatables oh, oh boy here's a good one um <laughs> it, it, well, it, if if you spend two weeks with me here at Rios, you know that there was a, probably a good decade where every project I was like, "Wait, can there be an inflatable in this?" And everybody's like, "No, Andy, like, don't put an inflatable in this." Um, we did a project. I don't know if I can conf I, I don't know if I can talk about it, but it was for a well-known city here in uh, Los Angeles um, for a gateway competition, and. You know, we thought we were the shining star in submitting. We were the perfect LA fit for this part. This project was written for us, right? Um, and we went in super geeked out. It was, you know, during COVID, uh, we were learning a lot about what public space could be, what 21st century, it actually felt like the start of the 21st century with the pandemic of really redefining and reframing a lot of challenges that we had to think through again. And so we proposed this crazy idea of, elevating giant inflatables 300 feet in the air at three intersections in the city here in Los Angeles um, with Twitch live streaming from above and every form of projection and exclusivity for artist engagement. And in the end, you know, they didn't agree. They did not failed. agree. <laughs> it failed. I mean, coolest project ever would have been amazing. I don't know how to tether down an inflatable. Look, there's a lot of question marks there. There's a big risk associated to that. If you've ever seen the Macy's Day Parade, there's always that one incident where somebody on the ground lets go of their string and chaos ensues. I think we would have solved the problem long term if we had gotten the project. But it was one of those things where we fundamentally, you know, it was a public process. So it was me at city council meetings talking about inflatables and how, how what the future looked like. And yeah, it did not, did not work well. So, you know, that's one of these things where, you know, do you compete with the idea or do you play the competition to win the gig? And I think for us, we were standing strong and saying, let's put a big idea out there. Um, and if it doesn't land or fly in that can, in that situation, um, it can at least give us a lot of thought leadership to continue the conversation across multiple other projects, open up a good dialogue. How would your firm be unique in response to when somebody does something wrong? Because I feel like so much growth in architecture firms is stifled from the younger generations 
inability to want to take any chances. So how do you allow for those chances to happen? And more importantly, how do you respond when they go wrong? Yeah, I think, you know, I think this is where a lot of this like notion of not beating someone up for failing in the sense of like, okay, I forgot to do something. I'm in construction. I totally forgot to detail and show you how to build half this project or something. I don't know if that's ever happened, but hypothetically, um, a lot of people hide in those situations. They figure they have to um, not disclose it to protect themselves and they try to sort of figure it out. But I think in those situations, because we have so many projects that go from concept to construction, you have to learn really quickly that the easiest way to handle a quote unquote failure in regard to letting a client down or making an error um, in decision making is addressing it up front. I think this goes back to Redemption Week, hashtag Redemption Week is what are you doing to f- to bring the team together to solve the problem? How can you be a mediator of bringing people together, opening up the dialogue, admitting error, but showing a path forward? Um, I think those situations are very powerful for all of us. Uh, And I think it's, you know, a lot of that stuff happens during construction that changes people forever. Um, It gets them to realize that if you hide behind your error, um, you kind of can't solve it, right? And so um, I think that's where we try to lead by example. I make mistakes constantly. My emails, I usually have a couple (laughs) words misspelled or my team's messages are even worse. And so recovering from that publicly, even the smallest scale error, um, shows people that you shouldn't hide behind it. You should sort of be upfront and, and celebrate it. We're all human. So yeah, I mean, any of us who have a more, um, you know, if you've ever had an authoritarian parent, right, you see those kids who come (laughs) who are so afraid of failure that they can't take risks. Right. And so you have to be the opposite of that as a boss, you have to be, uh, non-judgmental and open and collaborative and helpful so that people can trust you enough with their mistakes and their risks. Right. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I think in both stories that you shared, what I'm hearing is this tolerance building for being uncomfortable and putting yourself out there. And whether it's you're out in a public arena where you're really putting your heart out there and trying to advocate for something that you believe in, that you've clearly been designing for a long time, it's had a thread in your portfolio and you really are going for it. Or, you know, at the individual scale where you're showing up on your project and making a mistake, I think um, there is this growth process that happens when you're a professional where you need to learn how to be comfortable with discomfort. And it's only gained when you lean into the discomfort. But when you pull away from it, it's like you never get past that tolerance of what's the next level of discomfort you can reach. So I think sounds like you guys have really been pushing yourselves to try and um, model that for yourselves, but with your employees and to show them how they can lean into that maybe a little bit. Uh, when I was in business school, they actually made us take an improv class um, for that exact reason, right, is to be able to think on your feet and be uncomfortable in front of other people, which, you know, if you're an actor, that's probably okay with you. But for us finance nerds, it's really not. And so <laughs> getting to that place, but to your point, it's you have to have a job or some kind of training or something that pushes you through that. And then you just know, I trust myself and I'm going to be okay, whatever that situation is. If there's any recorded footage of you at improv school, I will pay whatever amount of money I can to find that and get my hands on that. (laughs) But I do think it's really hard. I mean, definitely like for someone who has a finance mind where you're, it's like 
numbers have right answers. And the same thing for architects who might be very technically minded and or very strong advocates for design where there are right answers and there are wrong answers. Like it can feel really uncomfortable, like feeling like you got it wrong. But I think that, you know, I just think that it's a process of like evolving over time and not always just showing up with the right answer on the first try. No, I think that sometimes there's more than one right answer too, right? Right, exactly. I think there's always more than one right answer. I would really like to go back to this idea of professional development and growing people over time. I think you guys are laying this incredible foundation for growth at your firm. Why don't you talk to us about how, for instance, Andy, you've had what I would say is a decently long career at a single architecture firm, especially if you look at how often people tend to switch between them. So what was that experience like for you personally? And how has that changed as you've grown into this leadership role at Rios? It's super fascinating. Yeah. Um, I don't date around much. I usually pick <laughs> pick one track and I stick to it and I try to work within it. Um, you know, I've been, it's, it's super exciting. This December celebrates a decade at Rios, which is pretty remarkable. I started as a designer, um, coming out of the recession from grad school, hot mess, probably had two outfits that kind of looked professional. <laughs> uh, and over, you know, that decade, I've really grown uh, in an amazing way. This this company and, and Mark Rios have really given me that ability to, you know, my whole career here, take risks, uh, pitch wild ideas, try new things, you know, push the boundary, both in operations, but also in the, the work that we're doing. And I think, um, you know, it may be atypical to not jump around, but when something's so good, it's really easy to sort of grow roots within it and and help build it and, and turn it into something really remarkable. You know, in my experience here over the past 10 years, I think it's really important to pay attention to all levels of staff. Um, we had an amazing experience last year with a sort of grassroots movement with our DEI uh, what we call our SII um, social impact initiative, that it was, you know, a, a group of junior intermediate, some senior leadership involved who really pushed us to implement positive action, immediate action in regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and it it has really springboarded and it really once again showed us you can't always just think you know who the next person is to take the risk. You have to sort of teach up and train up this type of thinking to everybody. Um, we have a lot of people in our, our junior staff right out of school who are really eager, tons of energy to jump into imagining business development in some way, shape, or form, which I think is really remarkable, right? Um, I think people are coming eager into their profession. And if you find that energy, you kind of have to keep fueling it. I think that's what happened with me here is I think, you know, Mark Rios and Bob Hale, they saw that I wanted as many challenges as possible and they would throw me the most, you know, important and, and challenging things ever and trying to find a way to get through it. Or Mark Mononaga would do the same thing in, in my early career all the time. Um, so I think it's one of these things where you have to pay attention to everybody across the office and you have to find people and you have to challenge them. Yet they, I think as Jessamine put it earlier today when we were talking, what's their superpower and how do you not do everything, but how do you do do your best, right? And and how do you put passion in that best? Just to add to that a little bit, we have, you know, this year we've put in place um, a more diverse set of job titles, which to Andy's point is um, a way for us to celebrate what, you know, someone's kind of 
superpower is. And so we have some people who really want to build their career along a, a single track, um, whether that's design excellence or technical leadership or, I, you know, I don't know what, um, or there's some people who are more those entrepreneurs and they're going to be studio leaders and they're going to be doing business development and they're not freaked out by the numbers. And, you know, everybody's a little different that way. Um, and so we try to make it so that people have various paths and sometimes they change over time um, where they can build their career. And the other thing that we really did learn during the pandemic, to Andy's point, was to build relationships across the levels of the office. There's so much energy in our um, junior staff. And it's been really lovely to get to work with them on different initiatives and build these relationships with people that I otherwise wouldn't work with on a daily basis. And so we're building business development teams across different geographies. And many of those include some very junior staff. They've got amazing ideas and they've got great friends from school that they can talk to and competitions they want to go after. And it's just been really fun to harness. So within that structure, you also have a unique leadership group where you actually bring in your junior staff to have a voice at the table. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it came about? Sure. So we have this thing that we call our management committee. Committee is a kind of dry word, but um, it rotates every nine months, which is also a bizarre term. I'm getting used to it. I'm getting used to these Uncomfortable. You have to be uncomfortable. It's all uncomfortable. <laughs> so we have this management committee. They meet with Andy and I to discuss um, real business issues, HR issues, strategic planning, business development, all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's made up of, again, it rotates every few months and it's uh, made up of different people across the office. We try to have diverse studio representation and diverse leveling. And it gives us a chance to really get to know people and how they would operate as business leaders. Um, and we're trying to kind of suss out if they're more of that specialist kind of person and what their perspective is, or if they're more of a business person and they want to grow in that way. And it just really helps us get to know there's so many people and in our office and that have really amazing talents. And it takes work to get to know them on an individual basis and what those talents are and how to really tune things to make it sing. Is this a voluntold type of position or an I volunteer for this type of position? How do you guys do that rotation? <laughs> Hunger Games. No, uh, we draw names out of a fishbowl at a Monday meeting. <laughs> no, it's it's more of a nominating process. Yeah, nomination. It's an honor. Yeah, I mean it's it, you know it's a really uh, amazing. I'm going to keep up with the Hunger Game terminology. It's an, it's a good arena, the management committee, because y you have a lot of challenging things day to day. Like I think you know. Jessamine and I wake up with our other partners every day, and every day there's something new, right? Um, just when you thought it was gonna, the day was gonna end, five forty-five, something happens. You're like, oh, we all got to get on the phone. We have to talk about this, right? So, it's really amazing to give people a place to feel that energy, right? That that need to solve a problem pretty quickly and to be strategic about it, and to understand, you know, multiple perspectives, to talk it out, um, to not be afraid to say things that you may want to hold in. So it's a, you know, the management committee. It needs it's a more exciting name, um, is a really great venue for people to sort of feel, for lack of a better term, the burden of, of what a day-to-day -day business ownership feels like, right? So it's interesting. So I have a, a final question that wasn't necessarily on our prep sheet, but given everything that you've told us today and that you've shared, you know, my question is, is what is next for Rios? Do you have any big ideas? Are you willing to share? One of the things that Rios 
probably the DNA of the firm is that it's always changing. Mark Rios has this amazing talk he gave our office once where he talks about the individuals who work here as a school of fish, right? We're kind of going together, but we're still individuals and um, it's moving and it's it's not an object. It's definitely a moving, growing, organic entity. And so heading into the pandemic, that was definitely an asset that we had. We are always totally happy to evolve and change and throw away you know, something that took five years to build. We're totally fine with that. And so it was easy for us to adapt very, very quickly. And so what we've taken out of it is that that's not going to change. Adaptation is going to be constant. You know, we've all had to kind of get used to that, right? This week we're in school. This week we're on Zoom. Now you have to test every five minutes. Now you're vaccine vaccinated and now your vaccine doesn't work so great. <laughs> so it's like, you know, the circumstances are shifting, you know, constantly. And um, getting people to the place where they realize that is the new normal, the new normal is that it's not, never going to be the same. Um is kind of where we landed, right? Is that we just have to be hyper flexible and agile. And that's what, you know, the one thing that we have talked to people about is, you know, if you're not comfortable in an organism that is changing and growing and evolving all the time, this might not be comfortable for you. And so for us, you know, I think a big part of it is getting to know and le- leaning into um, the energy and the advice of our more junior staff um, who have so much to say and, uh, so much to contribute. Um, I think if you're an organization that's a little bit stuck, there, everybody's got junior staff. That if you just actually listen to them, they have a tremendous amount of insight um, that you can lean on. Hundred percent. I think agility. Um, I think exactly to Jessamine's point. Like this is but one of many things to come. Life is always changing, and if we can't sort of adapt and survive, if not just survive, thrive. I feel like, um, you know, last year taught us the human condition of all of us. I'd, you know, for most of the time I had shorts on, uh, you couldn't see on Zoom. I didn't have brushed hair. My husband would walk in and usually interrupt Zoom phone calls with very powerful clients who would laugh, get to know you at a very different level. And I think, you know, coming out of all of this, if, if somebody in a business position in an ownership position was trying to return back to pre-pandemic normalcy, I would be blown away and say, you're not going to fit in. You're going to, you're going to stand out in a bad way and in contrast in a bad way. And I think it's really learning from these moments to really amplify um, new ways of thinking, um, new ways of doing everything and being much more open-minded to celebrating change as a day-to-day reality, I think is, you know, it's the future of where we're going. So get on board, I guess. And if you don't want to, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into our closing thoughts today, we wanted to share some info that we recently learned from the team at ArcIT. Our friends at ArcIT are helping architecture firms with their technology solutions, including fighting back against ransomware and cybersecurity attacks. They recently told us about one San Francisco-based design firm they help who had three ransomware attacks in a span of six months. Their latest hit took their generic IT provider over seven days to recover the data. Yikes. Imagine not having access to your project data for over seven days. For a mid-sized firm of 40 people, that's a lot of people not having the ability to do work on their projects. Cyber attacks are a growing challenge in the hybrid world, and they are costly. 
The firm leadership estimated that the pure financial cost of the business was just over 100K, not accounting for the tremendous mental pressure the team experienced during the attack and subsequent recovery. However, it's important to mention that proactive architecture firms can get ahead of these type of technology threats. As you consider your technology infrastructure needs for your business, be sure to check out ArcIT. They're a trusted IT provider who is in the business of helping architecture firms, and they offer tailored solutions for design studios, small, midsize, and large. ArcIT is offering a free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment to help you determine how secure your business is. During the assessment, ArcIT will help you identify your top three highest risk areas in your business. Speaking of risks, ArcIT is also sharing some helpful tips with practice disrupted listeners that you can implement tomorrow to ensure your business is secure from cybersecurity threats. Their latest tip is to use different passwords for every service and use a password manager such as LastPass to keep track of them. Tune in next week to hear the next tip from ArcIT. To take your security solutions further, contact ArcIT at www.getarcit.com pd to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or speak to them about custom solutions for your design firm. We kicked off the intro with the show and mentioned that I kind of have a history with Rios. I would love to get your fresh take on what they're doing as a firm and how you felt after you left that conversation with them. Yeah, I think you heard it at the end of the interview, but basically I just was really happy to discover a firm that's doing a lot of the things that we talk about on the show. It's it's rewarding to actually bring on a firm that's implementing some of the ideas that we're talking about because I I know that in some cases these ideas can be abstract and some firms might feel like they're applying them for the first time, but Rios is actually applying a lot of these ideas all at the same time and having success in implementing them. So I feel like this was a really good score to have them on the show. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I was just so surprised I hadn't investigated them deeper. I hadn't known about them deeper until the, I saw them on section cut and we'll actually put the section, the link to the section cut replay down in the show notes. So uh, our listeners can check them out. What was interesting to me was just how many different business lines that they have going in their firm and how they're truly embracing the entrepreneurial spirit and even encouraging it within was was really actually interesting to me. Yeah, and I think that that is something that has been with the firm for a long time. And so when they hit the pandemic, it basically, because they have that entrepreneurial spirit and they embrace some of those values, it enabled them to more willingly make adjustments and shift their business model to best support the firm through the pandemic and now even reconsidering where they go after. So it's a it's a great case study in terms of flexibility and adaptability and resiliency in terms of uh, adjusting your business model over time. And I also like this model of co that you know, like the co-CEO and the co-leading. They're definitely not the only ones out there. Um, we know Gensler is kind of well published for having 
co-leadership. But the the fact that like not all decisions necessarily rolls up to one, but rolls up to a partnership is just really prevalent kind of the relationship that Andy and Jessamine have with one another and how their strengths and weaknesses play off of one another as well. Yeah. And I've definitely seen co-leadership at a couple other firms. I think it is a really strong model and has pros and cons to it. But certainly a pro is that you are not as a leader holding all of the decisions Um, you know, you are able to work with somebody who understands and might actually complement your strengths or weaknesses in order to make decisions together. So the benefit is really just being able to uh, collaborate on decision making to make sure that you're, you're making the best decision for the firm. Well, I I guess, you know, where have the cons come from? And is it really um, relationship based on the relationship of those co-leaders? Or does it come, does it do the comes stem from outside of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, it's totally dependent on the people involved in the relationship. But yeah, I think that that's a risk. Like if the relationship's not, you know, in alignment, which I don't think that's the case with them. I think they're actually very well aligned. Um, or, you know, I think if one player's not communicating well, that could be an issue. Or oftentimes I think leaders get criticized for decisions really getting bottleneck at the top. Um, And so, you know, I could see things getting stalled out with needing two players to make a decision um, that could prolong the timeline. I think we co-lead, actually, Evelyn, on the the podcast. And I don't know. What do you think the pros and cons are? (laughs) I think... I don't know. We don't have to go there if you don't want to. (laughs) I want to be honest, right? I think there were times when our... Um, that professional relationship was tested and inevitably it tests friendship too, because we are such great friends. Like that's, that's just the, kind of the nature of doing projects together. But, um, yeah, I, I do think it's rare that you kind of find these relationships in the profession with people that you work so well together. And I've, to whatever extent I've, you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of the proof is in the the pudding. There's this there's this one gentleman that has worked with me, and and anybody who has worked with me in the past and is now listening to this podcast know that like like I, wherever I have landed, I've kind of asked some people in my past like if they want to come. So thankfully, I've had you know Willie has followed me, I think through like four different employers by now, five if you count the transition from Salesforce to. Uh, or the Slack to Salesforce. So, you know, if it's if it weren't for the podcast, I think we would still find another way to work together because we found it to be a really rewarding relationship. I agree. And I think that we play to each other's strengths and weaknesses. Like the things that I'm good at are complementary to the things that like you're really good at that I'm not good at. And so I think that that's really where this co-partnership works. Um, and, and so... I always feel like where I'm not able to lead as well, like you're always much better at some of those areas. So it's, it's nice. Like we're not, um, you know, there's, there are maybe some gaps, but like where my gaps are, like you often fill it. So. (laughs) Yeah. And I, but I also think the other, the other plus about that is, and, and we both have to kind of be accepting of this fact too, is that we push each other to continue to rethink our ideas and our opinions and our stances on, on different things. And I, and that's equally important 
if anything, as a constant reminder that things kind of need to continue to change and adapt uh, over time. And it's much harder to do without an external force, right? Like, I would not have made those decisions or those changes had not somebody else been pushing on me. Right, exactly. No, likewise. And I think you challenged me in areas I need to be challenged on sometimes. So I guess coming back to Rios, like we see that their partnership model is working really well and it's yielded some good results. Um, You know, coming off this conversation, do you want to talk a little bit about how you see them breaking down the boundaries of discipline? Because I, I know that you were really excited about everything that they had to talk about at Section Cut. They are being interdisciplinary in the best way possible, right? Like when uh, when I ask a lot of firm leaders in architecture, and I said this before on the podcast, you know, and they tell me we're interdisciplinary, we do education, we do um, healthcare, we do residential. It's It's all the same service in different market sectors. I personally do not consider that interdisciplinary. I've been referring so many people to Rios, by the way, because they're like, oh, we're going all remote. And I was like, it doesn't matter where you're working. Send in your... Um, <laughs> but I, even if you like go to Rios and you look at their careers website and you look at who they are hiring for, just the type of projects that they're pursuing, like they're, they're really being interdisciplinary. They are constantly seeking new business models. I think not neutral is a very tangible outcome of that. Um, right. It's a, it's a, it's a product line that has completely spun out and it's gone through a few pivots on its own. I'm just impressed by how they truly embrace the interdisciplinary nature of entrepreneurialism. And it's not, it's, it's not a reiteration or a rework. And I feel like a lot of firms, when they think about stretching themselves, are just reiterating upon the services that they already have. When I think about them as being an interdisciplinary firm, I think that the best example to illustrate that idea, it's really about their people and like the way that they're thinking past the boundaries of how they're problem solving. So for example, Jessamine has this great background in finance, and I think not a lot of firms would put someone with a finance background in a key leadership role. And for them to do that is a big statement. That means that they're looking at the players and the people that they're hiring and the backgrounds that they bring differently than uh, what I've seen most firms do. And so they're really putting a lot of value on what each person can bring to the team. And so leveraging her skill set is really benefiting the office in a myriad of ways. But by being able to break down those like barriers and work cross-discipline across their teams to be willing to take risks and to try new things out and maybe fail, but then maybe get it right, like those are all the opportunities that are going to support allowing the business model of architecture to grow. It's a heavy front end on risk, but I think that the reward is what we're talking about. The long-term payoff of getting it right is has a lot of uh, potential. It's risk, but I also think it's, it's not uncalculated risk, right? And it's risk knowing that they have a big enough portfolio that if it does go wrong – 
it's okay. Good point. I, I, I guess I would like for architecture firm leaders to think about really what is their risk tolerance and what is the opportunity cost of not putting yourself out there and, and trying in new things that could ultimately expand your service offerings and expand what you're delivering to your clients and the value that you're bringing to the table. And on that note, thanks for listening and tune in next week. Thank you again to our podcast partner, Monograph. Learn how Monograph can help you take control of your firm's financial health. Follow the link in our show notes or visit practiceofarchitecture.com backslash monograph so that Monograph knows that you heard about them from us. Thank you to ArcIT for their support of this episode. Don't forget to visit getarchit.com slash PD to set up your free 15-minute cybersecurity assessment or custom solutions for your design firm. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. You can find all of our past episodes by visiting practiceofarchitecture.com backslash podcast. You can also get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of ARCH. And you can join us in the POA lab. You can apply to be a part of the Practice of Architecture lab by visiting practiceofarchitecture backslash lab, where you will have more opportunities to interact with us and all of our podcast guests. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about all of the podcasts and video content connected to this community by visiting gablmedia.com. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about.